Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome back to this podcast Dr. Stephen Badalak. Uh, Dr. Badalak joined us uh, 14 months ago and shared some of his most exciting research in terms of tissue engineering. Uh, in the interim, he's made, and his, he and his colleagues have made significant progress, and this is an opportunity for an update in terms of these exciting uh, programs. First of all, welcome, Dr. Badalak. It's a pleasure to have you back with us again. Thank you, John. It's nice to be back. And uh, I might ask you to begin by doing a brief synopsis of your basic technology, and then we can talk about some of the specifics today. Sure, I'd be happy to. The um, uh, approach to tissue engineering and regenerative medicine that's uh, the focus of my laboratory involves the use of naturally occurring biomaterials that are used as inductive scaffolds to promote constructive remodeling of tissues or regeneration of tissues depending upon how successful we are. Uh, in, in summary, uh, in short summary, the naturally occurring material that we work with the most is called the extracellular matrix. That's a, a collection of uh, functional and structural molecules that exist in all mammals, humans, animals of any type, and it surrounds cells uh, cells actually secrete these molecules. In other words, it creates the environment in which they live. We harvest that environment and call it a scaffold and then use it uh, for therapeutic applications in patients that need reconstitution of a missing or injured body part. Okay, very good. Uh, for our listeners, uh, we'll have some links on the Regenerative Medicine Today uh, website uh, to uh, give you some more details about Dr. Badalak's technologies and uh, generally how he's been applying it. Uh, in terms of today, uh, there's a number of exciting developments that uh, you have. Uh, which ones in particular would you like to uh, share with our audience? Well, John, we um, do a lot of different things in my laboratory, which is, uh, some might say is good, and others might say, well, you know, you're uh, jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and that could be true, but uh, we have an innate interest in literally uh, all tissues and organs in the body and one of the reasons for that is that there's some very fundamental principles that uh, the body uses to heal and regenerate uh, tissues and those principles cross boundaries of, of all tissues. Uh, in other words, cells respond to certain signals whether those cells exist in a muscle or a nerve or a heart and uh, so we, th we believe that um, uh, applying those principles to areas where there's the greatest clinical need is, is an important thing to do. So we, t we tend to be involved in a lot, of, a lot of areas. The two areas that we've been having uh, the most um, activity in, in the past year have been in the area of esophageal reconstruction and in the area of uh, limb, uh, limb and digit reconstruction. So it, perhaps it might be of interest if we, if we focused upon those two areas. Very good. Uh, so shall we uh, start with the esophageal reconstruction? Sure. That sounds good. You know, the esophagus is uh, obviously necessary for life. It's the tube that connects the mouth to the stomach, and it's the beginning of the gastrointestinal tract. Uh, one of the unique and uh, challenging features of the esophagus is that it's, uh, it has very limited um, mechanisms uh, by which it responds to injury. Uh, and the, the primary mode of response is scar tissue formation. 
And when you get scarring of any tissue, the, the tissue contracts or constricts. Well, you really can't tolerate much of that in the esophagus because it causes a stricture or a blockage in, in the uh, pathway of food. You know, you think of the esophagus um, and, and all the different types of food and size and consistency that has to pass through it. It has the ability to stretch, uh, to, to have peristaltic movements that, that push the food from the front, from the mouth down to the stomach. And um, if you get uh, a stricture at any point along that pathway, it becomes non-functional. You can have 99% of the esophagus working great, and one local stricture makes the whole organ basically non-functional. And to make it worse, when you try to cre correct that one little area of, of injury or damage, um, the body responds by whatever you do to correct it with more scarring. So it's very difficult to uh, treat esophageal disease. What are, what are the typical causes of esophageal disease? Well, interestingly, the, the uh, type of cancer that has the fastest rate of growth in North America is esophageal cancer. And uh, also uh, uh, of interest is the fact that the type of cancer that uh, is being found in the esophagus is markedly different than was present 25 years ago. Up until about the early 80s, um, the type of cancer uh, that was usually seen was uh, what was called a squamous cell carcinoma and it was uh, a, a disease that typically affected uh, lower income populations was associated with uh, uh, excess drinking and smoking uh, and then in the early 80s that incidence began to change and it became much more of a white collar disease uh, middle and higher income uh, individuals were getting it, uh, wasn't not associated with uh, drinking or smoking, and uh, the type of cancer switched to an adenocarcinoma, and that's that trend has continued. So t today it, it is and remains the fastest growing um, type of cancer in North America. And now combine that with what I said earlier, where we have almost no way to, way to treat uh, e even less severe problems in the esophagus, uh, we're presented with a real challenge. And... Um, you know, believe it or not, the state of the art for uh, treatment of patients with esophageal cancer or even the precursor for esophageal cancer, which is called Barrett's esophagus, is, is removal of the esophagus. And so now you end up with uh, the stomach being uh, changed in its shape, pulled up through the chest and attached to a little bit of uh, the esophagus that's left in your throat. And so you can imagine what this... Uh, quality of life would be like after this type of a procedure is called an esophagectomy. And uh, the reason, as I said, that that's done is that there's no way to treat esophageal disease. So we look at this as a prime target for regenerative medicine. It's an area that currently has no acceptable therapy. Uh, the rate of problems with the existing treatment is huge. One out of every two patients that undergo surgery has a, has a serious problem. So the morbidity is very high. And so it's, it's certainly an area in medicine uh, that uh, has no, no solution, no acceptable solution at the present time. And so what is your approach to solving this particular problem? Well, it's, uh, it, it um, fits well with the uh, principles that we've been learning about how the extracellular matrix serves as an inductive scaffold for reconstituting tissue. Uh, the... Uh, one of the surprising, uh, pleasantly surprising 
phenomena that we see when we take uh, extracellular matrix, usually we harvest it from a, an animal source like a pig, and, and when we, of course we take the cells out and we sterilize it, and then we, we place it as a, a template uh, in an area of tissue injury uh, or damage. And um, what I was getting at was one of the more pleasant surprises was that very little and sometimes no scar tissue forms in the remodeling of that scaffold. You know, and as I'd said earlier, scarring is one of the um, ways in which adult humans heal, and it's particularly a problem in the esophagus. So we thought, well, you know, this is pretty interesting, and perhaps if we can carry over this lack of scarring or minimization of scarring into the esophagus, we might have an approach that is uh, more acceptable than the current uh, esophagectomy approach. And so we've spent the last five or six years actually investigating this phenomenon, but in the last year have made, uh, uh, I think, significant progress and are on the uh, verge of beginning two human clinical trials uh, for, uh, uh, with the use of um, ECMs or extracellular matrices for esophageal reconstruction. We're very excited about these uh, clinical trials. So this is very exciting in terms of uh, an opportunity to solve a very serious problem. And uh, I know that you get frequent inquiries about how can your technologies help some particular individual. Uh, I presume that uh, in terms of some initial clinical trials that the, the opportunities for participation are, are very limited? Well, yeah, and, that, and that's um, the way it should be because what we have got to prove is that what we have seen in all of our preclinical animal studies, and that, is, and that has been that we are able to actually resect portions of the esophagus or damage them and treat them with these scaffolds and get very acceptable results. Um, that those principles will hold true when we cross over species from our test animals into humans. And so these first two trials that will each have 20 patients in them are to prove ex uh, is to, are to test that. Uh, first of all, to be sure that using these materials is safe. We've done everything we can up to this point to show that it's safe and everything we can to show that this is going to work. Now comes the real proof of the pudding. And so we have a 20-patient trial that will begin in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and another 20-patient trial that, uh, pending IRB approval, will start here at the University of Pittsburgh. And so these will be patients who are undergoing esophagectomy, and our initial uh, application will be to use the scaffold at the site of the esophagectomy um, closure, that is the, the site at which the stomach is pulled up and attached to what's left of the esophagus. Uh, it, it, uh, as I'd said earlier, one out of every two patients has significant problems and uh, the main problem is stricture at that site of, of suturing. And so what we would like to do is to take this scaffold, place it at that site of anastomosis and uh, de determine whether or not we can eliminate or significantly decrease the stricture problem and at the same time cause a constructive remodeling of the tissue there. We feel that in this way we've, we've taken a very conservative step into the clinical field. We've allowed surgeons to do the procedure with which they feel the most comfortable and we're trying to offer them a solution that will decrease their complication rate. 
If we're successful in these two clinical trials, then we'll take the next step and see whether or not we can treat the disease that they're removing the esophagus for so that they don't have to remove the esophagus. So these things take time, and it's, uh, they have to be taken in very gradual, incremental steps like this in order to, um, to, to receive widespread use in the clinical community. So would it be a safe presumption on my part to say that the, uh, the individuals that are being selected for these two trials is really being managed by the, uh, the clinicians as opposed to by your laboratory? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we'll have no, uh, I'm not a surgeon, so I'm certainly not going to be doing these surgeries, but we do understand the principles of uh, the, uh, the tissue remodeling. So we will work with the surgeons, but they will use their existing patient uh, low, uh uh, population that, that comes through the door. And these will be patients that would, in the everyday course of events, be uh, uh, diagnosed with esophageal cancer or a high-grade Barrett's uh, esophagus dysplasia and be recommended for esophagectomy. They will undergo that procedure. And as a final step, we will add the biologic scaffold to the site of suturing and then um, hopefully significantly reduce the problems that these patients typically have. So for a patient who might participate in this, uh, how long does it take to get some assessment of whether this is a successful procedure? Well, our, our project, uh, these two studies are both going to uh, follow patients for six months. The, the majority of problems occur within the, in the first month or so. Uh, after surgery, you get infections and leakage, and the strictures start, and and, and then a couple within the next couple of months, you really see these strictures if they're going to happen. By six months, uh, if these patients are doing well, and that'll be documented by conventional imaging way uh, methodologies, then we feel very comfortable that after that they're not going to have a problem. So they're relatively short time frame trials. Now we'll likely keep track of those patients long term after that. But from everything we know about these, uh, these scaffold materials, they are completely resorbed within the first two months, and the remodeling has occurred and done. So really there's nothing to follow after six months except hopefully a normal, healthy uh, esophagus. Uh, we'll, we'll find out. We're very excited about this, looking forward to it. One final question in terms of this area, needless to say, all 20 patients aren't going to be done at the same time, so is, is it my presumption correct that uh, this might be, a, for the 20 patients, a, on the order of an 18 to 24-month uh, series of ex clinical assessments? Well, it may take that long because, of course, the start of the study is when we enroll the first patient. The end of the study is when the last patient that was done is six months post-surgery, so if it takes for example, a year to get the 20 patients in, then it'll be at least 18 months before the, uh, the studies are completed. And the, uh, we hope to start these studies by the end of 2007, and uh, therefore it'll be a busy couple of years coming up for us, uh, and we'll uh, anxiously look at the results. Well, most exciting and most promising, and uh, congratulations to you and your both technical and clinical colleagues for this uh, most promising uh, studies. Uh, let's uh, move to uh, the area of limb and digit regeneration. Again, some very exciting and, while very preliminary, some very promising results. Can you share some of those with us? Well, this, uh, uh, John, by far is the most challenging project that uh, I've ever undertaken, and yet uh, also um, probably the most exciting uh, because it really uh, 
um, addresses that area of regeneration of regenerative medicine that truly um, requires us to understand normal human development how do limbs and digits normally grow with uh, you know normal length normal joints normal skin on the surface and muscle and tendons and nerves and blood vessels and everything that's part of a digit and a limb uh, because uh, the, uh, the so this is a very complicated um, problem uh, and traditional tissue engineering approaches uh, typically involve one or two tissue types or cell types you know skin for example has got the epidermis with its particular cell population and sometimes a connective tissue dermal like uh, component to it and they don't even worry about blood vessels and nerves and uh, lymphatics and other things when we're talking about skin because you can put it on the patient and it uh, remodels uh, into a pretty acceptable uh, skin-like tissue. You can't get away with that in the uh, in the digit and limb. Yeah, you can't uh, simply place a scaffold there or place a cell type there or play or inject some molecule and expect that by magic we're going to get uh, uh, the regrowth of a of an entire limb. Um, so the I, I believe the, the key to this particular problem is a highly interdisciplinary approach. So we've been very fortunate in, the, in that we have received a, a large grant from the Defense Department, uh, the, the, uh, Institute, the, a, an organization called DARPA, uh, Defense Advanced Research Program Agency, uh, where they believe that this is an important problem because of the... Um, High, the high number of soldiers that are coming back from the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq that have amputated uh, fingers and limbs. And uh, it, it, I think it's a testament to the Defense Department that they're not, uh, that, that there's a, another side to them. They're simply not equipping and sending these guys to war. They're looking after them when they come back and saying, what can we do besides uh, provide you with an artificial limb? We're actually looking for a solution that's going to maximize the quality of life that you have if you're unfortunate enough to have one of these types of injuries. So they've granted us uh, the opportunity to work on this in a very interdisciplinary manner. There's six institutions involved in this project. Uh, we're the lead institution, and our uh, uh, colleagues are at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. Then the, the team there is led by Dr. Susan Braunhut with the help of uh, Dr. Ken Marks. Uh, we have a colleague at the uh, Wistar Institute in Philadelphia, Dr. Ellen Heberkatz. Uh, another at the Weill Cornell School of Medicine in um, New York City, and that's Dr. Lorraine Gudis. Uh, and then uh, two developmental biologists uh, one is Dr. Shannon Odelberg at the University of Utah, and the other Dr. Hans Georg Simon at Northwestern University. And uh, the, the uh, expertise of each of these individuals is very um, distinct and different. Uh, these six individuals would, would never have worked together uh, on a project because their approaches to the problem are typically so different uh, that it would be very difficult to write the type of grant that would get funded through tra traditional methods. So what this 
particular program has provided is an opportunity for people who study uh, how limbs regenerate in salamanders and newts with people like Ellen at, at Philadelphia who try to who work with a uh, mouse model and who who is an immunologist by training and working with uh, Dr. Gudis uh, in New York City who who is the head of the pharmacology department and is uh, a, a terrific uh, investigator in the um, uh, science of understanding how cells, um, uh, how, how messages within the nuclei of cells are turned on and off uh, and, and works from a biomolecule type of an approach. And I could go on and on, but um, it's, it's an entirely different approach to regenerative medicine that what, than what we typically see in institutes like the McGowan Institute. Interestingly, you mentioned newts, and uh, you know, many of our listeners may think of this, what you've just described to us as uh, you know, far-fetched, but uh, uh, perhaps, again, many of the listeners recall that they, uh, as children, in the course of experimenting with newts, if they have a, a severed limb, that actually regrows. So uh, I, I guess what your strategy is is to maybe understand why it works there and why it doesn't work in humans. Yes, as a general, um, yeah, that's that's a part of it, but not all of it. Um, you know, we as humans can regenerate certain parts of our body. We don't think of it very much, but we always are replacing our skin. We regenerate the lining of our intestine, our bone marrow, and all the blood cells, and that's truly regeneration. But the rest of our tissues have specialized and developed to an extent that they can't or don't regenerate anymore uh, once once they mature. Now, that implies, and indeed it is true, that while they are developing, in, in other words, as a fetus, and sometimes even in, as a newborn for the first year or two of life, we can actually regenerate uh, uh, tissues and organs that we certainly can't after we're born. For example, if you in the first half of pregnancy, you can amputate portions of limbs and they'll grow entirely. You wouldn't even know there was a problem by the time the child is born. And as fetal development progresses, we lose that ability. You know, where the newts don't. Well, what signals get turned on or off that uh, allow us to regenerate early but not later? And instead of regenerating, we, score, we form scar tissue, like I was talking about with the esophagus. So one of the keys is to, as you indicate, understand the similarities and the differences in the adult newt versus the adult human. Our, our genes are actually very similar. There are enough differences, obviously, for one to be a newt and another to be a human, but there are an awful lot of very similar genes that are uh, present in, in our uh, DNA. And so we're looking at, uh, we're developing profiles of the genes that are present in a dormant state, uh, in, a, in a state uh, following an acute injury, such as an amputation, and then in stages of development, um, following an injury in, in both systems and saying, what's the differences? You know, what, what, are the, what genes are different between these two as they move through this healing process? And perhaps get some clues as to which are the most important genes to try to keep turned on uh, so that we can maintain or retain or regain a lot of those regenerative processes. So, so obviously we've got a lot of expertise on this, on this team and understanding um, gene expression patterns. It's, it's a huge component of the project. It's very interesting, and of course, these are some very fundamental studies that uh, uh, 
presumably will take some time to uh, come to a practical uh, fruition or application, but uh, I seem to recall that there was a recent article in the Wall Street Journal in which, uh, in, a, in a singular experiment, uh, there were some indications that uh, this, these technologies, in fact, may be workable in, in terms of humans. Well, yeah, that, you know, we, we don't know what approach is going to work. You know, as I indicated earlier, uh, our lab's um, contribution to this project is that we understand the extracellular matrix. We understand what it's made out of. We understand its uh, um, functional and its structural roles. And we're getting a much better understanding of how it serves as inductive templates for, like, the esophagus. Now, uh, occasionally, we have the opportunity to try these uh, scaffold materials in severe injuries. And so we had a, an individual come to us who happened to have uh, had his finger, the end of his finger cut off in one of these uh, model airplanes that you fly around and uh, happened to know what we did in our lab and uh, gained access to some of the, this biologic scaffold material. And um, we tried it. And uh, he, he was in his late 60s, so certainly beyond the age of typically expecting regeneration, and, and, and a very surprising result over a period of about six weeks actually regrew the tip of his finger. And you know, we're talking about about two thirds of the finger beyond that last joint. Now, that's very surprising. It wouldn't be so surprising in a one year old or a two year old, or maybe even a six year old. But in a 67 year old man, we were astonished. Uh, didn't understand it, but we were astonished. It happened in another one other instance in an, in a, in an older in, individual who had a very similar accident. And uh, we were, you know, if we were astonished the first time, we were doubly astonished when it happened in, in a second individual. Now, that doesn't mean that we believe this is a way to treat amputated fingers. But what we do believe is that there are some important signals in the matrix that help to regulate tissue regeneration as opposed to scar tissue formation, which probably is why we're getting good results in other applications. So this is our contribution to this team. And uh, we're, there's something in there, something good. You know, our, our challenge is to figure that out, get control of it, and then reproducibly you know, apply it to patients who have these unfortunate injuries and say, you know, if we do this, we're going to significantly improve your chances of, of reconstructing this digit, or maybe we will get lucky and say this limb, um, and that's our, that's our goal. You're you're right. This is a Star Wars sort of a challenge. Uh, we certainly can't do this alone. Uh, the opportunity to work with all of these other very talented individuals is exciting for me personally, and I, I think it's the, uh, uh, the that the type of information that will come out of this project will then have broad applications across the field of tissue engineering and regenerative medicine. In terms of uh, clarity for our listeners, uh, it, if I understand correctly, it was a powdered form of this extracellular matrix you described earlier in our conversation that was used to regenerate this, uh, this, these uh, fingertips. Right. The, uh, I haven't talked as much about the ECM itself uh, during this particular podcast, but uh, perhaps it's worth of a minute to, to say that when you harvest this material, and like I said, we usually get it from a pig. We happen to, in this particular instance, 
use the extracellular matrix on the pig's bladder, it comes out as a sheet. Uh, so it's a sheet of material that's actually pretty strong. Well, sheets don't work for a lot of different surgical procedures, so we have to turn it into different forms. And we can make a powder out of it, we can make a gel out of it, and other forms of, of matrix, all of which would have uh, more user-friendly applications for the physicians depending upon how they're going to be used. In this particular individual, you're right, we used a powdered form that we put on the amputated end of that finger and reapplied it enough that we kept the stimulus going and um, we got lucky. We got really lucky and hopefully we're going to learn something from it. Okay, I guess the other point is that you've just described to us a, a several uh, what I'd call ad hoc experiments that others conducted uh, using some materials that you've identified and, and developed that uh, I presume in, in terms of any f uh, additional formal clinical assessments or trials that this is uh, now would require the traditional IRB approvals and so forth? Well, in, for most applications, certainly like the esophageal study that we were talking about earlier, uh, the very, uh, you know, standard approach, you know, you got to make application, be sure you get through all of the committees, get IRB approval, make sure that the device you're using is manufactured according to uh, CGMP standards and FDA uh, has to approve the particular application and yeah so all of those hoops have been gone through for that particular application in the, uh, the in other applications and um, surprisingly uh, in, the, in this very small pilot study that we're doing with the uh, Defense Department on the fingertip um, extension uh, it's regulated a bit differently in fact it's uh, not regulated almost because, well, well it is to, it, that's a little misleading. The powdered form of the extracellular matrix already has FDA approval for the reconstruction of injured soft tissue. So if one looks at the end of the finger as injured soft tissue, uh, one way to, uh, that, that the Institutional Review Board at the Institute for Surgical Research in San Antonio has looked at this is to say, you know, this, this really, you're really not testing this material for something that's beyond its label, you're simply using it in what they've called an innovative surgical procedure. In other words, they're taking an existing approved material, and the surgeon's saying, I think I can use it in this rather unique way to achieve a desirable end result. Um, so, yeah, you know, each of these, what I've learned as we've, tried, as we've become more experienced in translating the benchtop findings of regenerative medicine to the clinics is that everything, everything needs to be looked at as a unique situation. Okay, but just again for clarity, uh, you're not conducting a clinical trial. It turns out that the uh, U.S. Army is conducting a clinical trial and the, and the patients are uh, at this, this early juncture uh, soldiers who have uh, received uh, wartime injuries. That's that right. Yeah, you know, there's, uh, these are going to be uh, somewhere, be, uh, as, as the most patients that we would allow into this initial trial is 10. So we're going to take 10 soldiers who've had these sorts of amputations, who've really got nothing to lose, and, uh, and see whether or not we can get uh, the type of result that will improve their quality of life. If things work out well, then we'll expand this uh, particular application make it more widely available. Um, so we, we've got uh, a couple of different avenues that we're approaching to help people that are missing digits and, and limbs. One's this sort of unique, let's just see what happens with this material we have now sort of approach. 
uh, and the other one is a much more challenging approach of, of trying to recapitulate developmental biology and see whether we can get adult humans to regrow fingers and hands and so forth. Well, this is uh, equally fascinating to your esophageal reconstruction you described earlier, and uh, uh, it seems as though we're on the verge of some uh, some radical changes in, in clinical procedures, but uh, the general public, I understand we'll have to wait just a bit before it'll be available on a wide uh, clinical basis. Yeah, yes they are, um, but you know, uh, whereas five and ten years ago uh, it wasn't even on the horizon. Nobody would have even thought about these things. I think one of the wonderful things about the field of regenerative medicine is that we, these are the exact problems that are being tackled. The whole field exists because there are these problems that up to, until this time were thought to have virtually no solution with traditional approaches. So, you know, one of the things that you know, you're stating the obvious, regenerative medicine exists today to, to um, find solutions that conventional modes of therapy uh, don't have the capacity to uh, address. And these are two examples. I think they're... Uh, they, you're right, it's exciting. Uh, you're not going to be able to go to your doctor next week or next month or maybe even next year and have your esophagus replaced or your finger regrown. But um, the, a, a lot of very good things are going to come out of these studies and the eventual goal of regrowing an esophagus or a finger, in my opinion, will be realized. Uh, I can't tell you how long that's going to be. I wish I could tell you it was going to be you know, six months from now, but uh, you know, it's not. Uh, it's, it's hopefully hopefully within my lifetime. Interesting, because if I recall correctly, in terms of some of the very fundamental forms of your extracellular matrix, it's already benefited over a million patients. So uh, I think there's an incredible track record for uh, success and for uh, clinical translation. And uh, I thank you for visiting with us today, and uh, we look forward to another visit to hear an update on these uh, most exciting and most promising technologies. Oh, you're welcome, John. Thank you for having me.